Amen. Let that be our prayer as we open God's Word together, and I invite you to do that now. Take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel according to Mark, and this morning to chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. And we will read the first 12 verses today. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, follow along uh, as I read. And remember that this is God speaking to us this morning. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together... Let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As we get ready to embark on these verses, let's seek the Lord's help. Our Father, we thank you for this time, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts concerning these things, we pray that you would grant to your servant that he would speak clearly and accurately on these things this morning, Father, and we pray Uh, that we would be blessed as we hear your word and the preaching of your word today. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, the living word. Amen. You may be seated. You know, statistics are always difficult things to deal with. They can be helpful at times, but... They can be manipulated, they can be misleading. The way a question is asked uh, and to whom it is asked can produce wildly different results. Parameters on the data can vary so much that relying solely on statistics or poll results can really be just asking for trouble. Uh, Just ask Hillary Clinton in 2016 or the Republican Party after the latest midterm elections. But however we slice and dice the data, one set of statistics is extremely sad and extremely troubling, and that is the statistic about divorce among confessing, theologically conservative, church-attending active in their church, born-again Christians. And there's all sorts of numbers thrown around. Um, Again, statistics are like that. But the low end that you hear about on divorces among 
those categories of Christians is somewhere around 27%. 27% of marriages of those people, Christians, uh, will end in divorce. And you might say, well, that's not too bad. Sometimes we hear numbers much higher than that. But think about it. That's over a quarter of marriages. A quarter of Christian marriages will be abandoned by those who stood before a church, probably, stood certainly before God and vowed to God and to one another till death do us part. One in four. I mean, for every four couples you see here this morning, one of them, statistically, uh, will end in a divorce. And that's not just a troubling, not just a sad statistic, because, of course, the people in those marriages are not statistics. They're people. They're couples. They're friends and family members and church members. People who, I assume, when they were married, they intended it to be till death do us part. And so it's a tragedy, really, in the church that divorce is so common within the church. A tragedy, but not really so much of a surprise. I mean, we are sinful people. And we struggle with seeking to or seeking out and submitting ourselves to God's revealed will in any number of, of situations. And in every marriage, you've got two such people thrown together. But none of these issues are, are new. This morning, we come to chapter 10 in Mark's gospel. And as we do, we come to a question that gets asked about divorce. And Jesus answers it. And as he answers it, though, he really teaches us, and we actually learn, if we pay attention here, a lot about marriage itself and God's intention for marriage. Um, We should note here at the outset that this passage is not a focused, extended teaching on marriage and divorce, but it's Jesus answering a question that is put to him in a less than honest and less than upfront way, which we'll see as we look at this. And that's the first thing that we're going to, be, that we're going to look at, a, a point that I've said, I've called, this is a test. Jesus and his disciples are, as we've been seeing, are journeying again from the northern region of Galilee. They're on their way to Jerusalem on this um, last trip to Jerusalem where Jesus uh, will be crucified uh, from the north down into the, the, the southern-ish part of the nation. And Jesus has been teaching, as we've seen, his disciples about what it means to be disciples. And in doing so, he has been teaching us what it means to be followers of Christ. And I trust you've been uh, learning that and applying these things that we've been looking at uh, in your own life as we seek through the things that we learn to become better disciples of Christ. But now Mark tells us that they left there, this is verse 10, and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So they've left Galilee. Uh, In Mark's gospel here, he won't be coming back to Galilee. 
Uh, They're headed down toward the south, and as they head that way, they end up uh, going to the east and crossing over the Jordan River to the east side there of the Jordan to the area where John the Baptist had had his ministry, where he had baptized many, including Jesus. A territory over there uh, called Perea, uh, which was under the jurisdiction, under the authority of Herod Antipas, which we've heard about, the one who had had John the Baptist arrested and eventually beheaded. And as they come here to this area, we read a familiar phrase for for us who have been going through Mark's gospel here. It's been out of view. We haven't come across it for a a little bit here since earlier in chapter 9. But look at there again in verse 1. We read that he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him. Again, Again, the crowds are coming. Again, the crowds see where Jesus is going or find out where Jesus is going. And uh, they want to be with him. They want to hear from him. They want to see any miracles that he might do. And he comes to them. And and Mark's conclusion then to what is really the setup here for this encounter that's going to take place is uh, that he writes, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And that takes us back to the very beginning of the book of Mark in chapter 1, where we read that as Jesus came came on the scene and began his ministry, uh, we read in chapter 1, verse 14, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we know as we've gone through this that everywhere Jesus goes, uh, he teaches the people who come to hear. Uh, is Jesus' priority in his ministry to teach and to preach the crowds concerning the kingdom of God. And so the crowds gather around here Um, to hear from Jesus, but then as we come to verse 2, Mark introduces another group who come to see Jesus, and they've come into the crowd here for uh, less than savory reasons. It says that the Pharisees came up, um, and so they are here now, and as they come on the scene, they, of course, are hostile. To Jesus. They are not here to learn from Jesus. They are not here to, to soak in his teaching in order to be bettered by it. Uh, Mark tells us also that the question then that they ask is not a sincere question, not to gain information, not to foster a conversation, but it says at the beginning or the middle there of verse 2, it says that they came up and in order to test him, they asked him a question. You know, as a pastor, I get asked a lot of questions. People come up to me regularly and ask questions, and of course I welcome that and encourage that. But while almost all come with genuine questions, there are some from time to time, there are people who come and who like to play stump the pastor. And by the way, it's not all that hard to do. Um, or they try to convince me of something to change uh, my thinking on something, but they come with sort of an agenda more than to just ask a question and to get an answer regarding something. 
And that's what's happening here. The Pharisees come, they want to test Jesus. They want to trap him in his words in order to discredit him among the people. Now, it's possible that the way they are trying to do that, and this is kind of interesting, that remember this takes place in Perea, which, as I mentioned, was the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. Uh, and the question, as we'll see in just a moment, we've already read it, it, the question has to do with the lawfulness of divorce. Now, do you remember what happened the last time to the last guy who spoke against Herod and his sister-in-law slash niece slash wife, Herodias, who questioned the, the, the rightness of, of that marriage. Well, that person was John the Baptist, and he, as I mentioned, ended up losing his head literally because of it. Perhaps the Pharisees may hope that Jesus will give an answer to their question that will bring down the wrath of Herod upon him as well and and take care of of Jesus for them. Uh, Whatever the reason, they ask Jesus this question, again, in order to trick him. And the question is this there in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that was a question in this time that was for which existed a difference of opinion. And just as today, there there were liberals and there were conservatives then, rabbis of different views on a whole range of topics, among which was the topic of divorce. And the key to the the differences, the key to the the different views, was the interpretation of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that we read a few moments ago that gives the ground for, uh, for the divorce that's under consideration. Let me read it to you again. It was right at the beginning of the chapter that we read. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife." After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And the key phrase in all of that is the phrase right at the beginning that says, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. What does that mean? Uh, That's the question. And that's the question that led to these two predominant views of of divorce in the time of Jesus. Two different rabbis were sort of the the leaders, the proponents of these two two schools of thought. One view from a rabbi named Shammai, uh, we'll call it the conservative view, said that that means sexual immorality. It means adultery a very narrow understanding of what that means. Uh, In Deuteronomy 24, that that indecency that he found in her was that she was unfaithful, that she was adulterous. Uh, 
And therefore, that is the ground that is acceptable for divorce, or the acceptable grounds for divorce. The other view uh, of a rabbi named Hillel, that's the liberal view. And Hillel said that that phrase, no, was very broad in its meaning. And in addition to any sort of uh, sexual immorality, it, it, it covered any moral fault. In fact, he said that it covered anything which caused annoyance or embarrassment to a husband. That any of that was a legitimate ground uh, to sue for a divorce. Uh, It's popular for for pastors to use the illustration, which was used um, in this, that even if she were to burn dinner, according to this liberal view, that would be enough for a divorce. You know, one of the things in our society that's led to the explosion of divorce is the advent in 1969 of what's called no-fault divorce. Prior to, to 1969, one had to prove some fault from the other party, uh, like divorce, or I'm sorry, like adultery or violence or fraud in entering into the marriage, uh, or bigamy, already being married. But after 1969, when contributing to, the, to our shame um, as a state, California was the first to enact so-called no-fault divorce. After that, all that was needed is the desire of one party to divorce the other. The fiction was brought in of so-called irreconcilable differences. That's enough. And the view of this uh, Hillel school is sort of the first century um, version of no-fault divorce. And the Pharisees came and and they looked at this passage in in Deuteronomy and saw that a man was able to give a certificate of divorce to his wife, kind of like her pink slip, uh, to, to send her away. And they were asking about that. It's a, it's a certificate of divorce. So that's what they ask him about. What is, is it lawful for a man to do that, to divorce his wife? But the question, remember, is not a sincere question. They're seeking to come to a conclusion uh, in a way that will trap Jesus somehow. And that's the question simply. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the test that they set before Jesus, the trap that they set. And, of course, Jesus deals with it masterfully, as he always does. And as he usually does, it is with, and this is our second topic this morning, with an appeal to Scripture. As always, Jesus is not tied to the traditions and to the arguments that were common at the time, Uh, but he directs the Pharisees back to the Scripture. And he asks a very general question to them by asking what he says there in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Go back to the Scripture and and let's see what Moses is saying here. And he just, that's very general, right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So he's saying, what did Moses command you. He didn't direct them to any particular passage. He didn't say, what did Moses say in Deuteronomy 24, um, which is the basis for this discussion. He didn't direct them to Genesis 2, 
which he's going to quote from Jesus' will in just a moment. But they go to Deuteronomy 24, and they say in verse 4 here, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Which is true, but that's not exactly the point of Deuteronomy 24, which is why we read all of it, uh, all of those first several verses. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 3, is, is really concerning the question or the situation that if a man divorces a woman and if she then remarries and that husband either dies or he divorces her, the point here was that the first husband couldn't swoop in and remarry her. You say, why would he do that? Well, we won't go into all of it here, but the purpose uh, was to protect the woman to keep the man from, as the result of some clever scheme here, collecting two dowries uh, from the woman, from the woman's family. But look at how Jesus responds to it in verse 5. Jesus said to them, very interesting, he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. See, Jesus is saying here that this isn't a command to divorce. This isn't even really a permission to divorce, but the Deuteronomy 24, those first verses, represents a a concession to them, a regulation upon something that was already being done, that was already out of hand anyway, for the purpose then of lessening the damage that these divorces would do in the situation that I just mentioned. In God's grace, he, he regulates a sin that these people are committing, he says, because of their hardness of heart. Uh, their propensity to divorce. God's not authoring, authorizing it. He's not sanctioning it. Elsewhere, remember, it says that God hates divorce. But he regulates it. Because he says of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. To limit sinfulness, to limit the effects of sinfulness, and to control its consequences. That's the first part of the answer that relates particularly to uh, the, the passage that, that they went back and referred to. But Jesus is not done there. He then leaves that and goes back to the root of the whole matter. He redirects their attention away from uh, Shammai and Hillel. He moves their attention away even from Moses and this particular piece of case law, the specific application of the law of God to this situation of people divorcing and multiple divorces and remarried marriages. He goes back before Moses and back to the very creation. And he gives them and us really a lesson on marriage in three verses here. And then he draws a conclusion which answers their question um, more specifically. Look at verse 6. Let me read verses 6 to 8 here. This is what Jesus says. Uh, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. 
So in these verses, we're going to see very briefly seven truths about marriage that Jesus lays out in these, these verses. Uh, remember, remember back in the 70s, if some of you can remember back that far, the, the little single panel cartoon that was called Love Is. Um, maybe some of you do. Well, here's Jesus' version. It's called Marriage Is. And he starts out, Jesus does, by showing them that marriage is ancient. Marriage is ancient. In verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Remember, he's talking about marriage here. He's talking about, um, about divorce in a, in a more broad way. Uh, he roots marriage in creation. By the way, note that Jesus says from the beginning of creation. No room for Darwinian evolution here or in Genesis or anywhere in the Bible. Creation is where this all began. When God created heaven and earth and all that is in them. Created man, created woman. And marriage was one of the things that he gave to them. Before the fall, marriage is what we call a creation ordinance. It was instituted before the fall, before the disruption in the relationship between man and God, before the fall, before the curse. Um, And so marriage then holds in the context of mankind as a whole. It's given to mankind not as as redeemed, which would be after the fall and after Genesis 3.15, but as created. It's part of the creation And God gives marriage to them in their most primitive state, and it therefore holds for all people at all times. All races, all religions, all cultures are subject to this mandate, this command, this institution that God gives, the institution of marriage. So that's the first thing, is that that marriage goes all the way back to the creation. The second thing, right along with it, is that marriage is divine. That is, it was instituted by God. Marriage is not just a social custom, not a social convention. And so, since it's not, we are not free to redefine it or to dispense with it. Certainly, there are differences in the procedures and the ceremonies and the trappings of marriage, But the essentials are the same, essentials that God has given, and we'll look at them in a minute, uh, which God uh, has given, which have endured, except in the most godless and rebellious of places, which tragically the United States is right at the front of the list. But while God has not regulated all of these particulars and different cultures have different rites and different ceremonies, the essentials, as I say, have held uh, for thousands of years since the garden until the insanity and the evil that we see today. So marriage is archaic and marriage is divine. A third thing here is that, and this is very much in the news uh, these days, uh, but God is clear, marriage is heterosexual. This is, the gra- this is grounded in the intent and the actions of God. And Jesus quotes it. He says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
One of the primary purposes that God set up this marriage thing uh, is for the purpose of procreation. Which, and that's from Genesis 1.28, he gives that. Which, no matter how people today want to play fast and loose games with language and pronouns and such, procreation still requires, and by that I mean requires, a man and a woman. A male and a female. XY and XX. And God's design, God's command for marriage is that it is between a man and a woman. God made them male and female. He brought the woman to the man. Genesis 1. And apart from us being made in the image of God, that being made male and female is the most basic truth about humans. And inextricably tied to that truth of our constitution, how we are constituted, inextricably tied to that is the marital truth that marriage is between a male and a female, identifiable by anatomy and genetics. And culture can ignore that, it can reject that, it can sin against that, but it cannot redefine that. It is not, marriage is not, heterosexual marriage is not man's to define, and so it is not man's to redefine. Marriage is heterosexual. Marriage is also exclusive. That's the fourth thing. Marriage, according to God's institution, and is not just between a male and a female, a man and a woman, but his design is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Verse 7, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That is the God-ordained basic family unit. And it is one of each. A man and a woman. Not two men, not two women, not one man and two women, not one woman and two men, not this nonsense today of of polyamory, not several of each just kind of thrown together with not even the pretense of monogamy, not even the pretense really even of marriage. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7-2 said that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is also dispersive. I have to explain that one a little bit. Marriage is dispersive. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So the institution of marriage is, is what disperses the human race throughout the world. And it does so in an interesting, perhaps we might call it a counterintuitive way. A man and a woman married have a daughter. She's born, they raise her, they love her. She's instructed by her parents. She's protected by her parents very strongly. 
her family, which is the closest relationship that she knows. And as she grows, the father continues to to protect her. And um, then one day, a young man enters the picture whose eventual express purpose is to take that daughter away from that family and for them to go off and to raise children of their own, to replace the family, the only family that this girl has known, with another. Even as I say that, I I can sense the men here with daughters either tensing up or tearing up, but we know that that is God's plan, isn't it? It's not just that a man will leave his father and mother, but the woman does as well. It is God's plan that the girl and the son raised in a family are raised and trained and prepared for that day when they will leave and start a family of their own. And so on and so on and so on. Now it's also God's plan, and ignoring this aspect is the cause of many problems in marriages, especially young marriages. But it's also God's plan that when they do leave their homes to begin their own life, that the man is to leave his father and his mother, and the woman is to do the same. And not just physically, but emotionally. Uh, Now the woman who had submitted to her parents all this time, now her loyalties, now her submission is to her husband. And the man's responsibility is to his wife. And when one or both of the parties in a new marriage don't leave emotionally from their parents, there are problems. This type of leaving is God's will as well. Running home to mother for the woman is only rarely helpful. And a man being unable or unwilling to Cut the apron strings, is that how we say it? Is a source of trouble. Because marriage is dispersive. It's disruptive to the family in the best sense because it's God's will for people to leave the home and enter into the new family unit through marriage. Now on the other side of that, the sixth thing is that marriage is unifying. Marriage is unifying. At the beginning of verse 8, Jesus reminds us when he says, and the two shall become one flesh, he reminds us that through the, the consummative act of the marriage bed, that there is a connection between man and wife on both a physical and a beyond physical plane that results in a union that is quite beyond our comprehension. We can read what Jesus says about it, read what the apostles say about it, but we don't quite understand it, that the two become one flesh. Obviously, they're still two people, but they're united in a way, in a relationship that is, that is both physical and mystical, and which results, marriage does then, in the closest bond between humans. The closest relationship. Closer than parent to children and children to parent. 
The parent-child relationship is never spoken of in this way that a husband and wife relationship is. And exactly what that means, as I say, is, is deep and difficult to precisely define. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul talks about it in more of a, the purely physical aspect of it. But in Ephesians 5, we're told that, that becoming one flesh is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So there's a lot of deep meaning in this statement. And though there is certainly more in this, there is not less in this than this, that marriage ordained by God and entered into by one man and one woman is the fulfillment of God's institution of marriage and results in two people who are now one flesh, which has implications for those that are involved in it. Now notice how Jesus' statements here, notice how it moves. It starts from the clear creation distinction between male and female to a man and a woman coming together in marriage to them becoming one flesh. From distinction to unity, brought together, and and to that unity through the command of God and the institution of God in marriage uh, that they are no longer two but one flesh with all that that means. And that leads to the last aspect of marriage that we have here and the one that Jesus sort of keys in on and that is that marriage is permanent. And this gets back to the question of the Pharisees. This is the conclusion to which Jesus comes. He takes this last statement there. Uh, we'll read verses 7 and 8. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, So... They are no longer two, but one flesh. See, that's the part that Jesus keys in on. That's the part that he focuses on. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And regardless of of Moses' accommodation to, to God's people and to their hardness of heart in order to lessen the damage that these divorces and the remarriages were already having, having, And regardless of the two sides of this debate on how to interpret that phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1, Jesus reaches back to the intent and the direction of God in all of creation and says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He creates a male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, he says, let no man separate. Far be it, Jesus says, from the creature, for man, the creature, to undo what God by his own word has put into place. Far be it from from man to separate what God has joined. Far be it then, far be it now. And that's Jesus' answer to their question. Now, when they come down here to to verses um, 10 and following, that episode is, is over. They go back to the house. We've seen them retire to a house, and Jesus further instructs them. We've seen that before. We see it now. In the house that evening, the, desi- the disciples desire a little more insight on this. Because um, remember, this is not a full teaching on marriage or divorce. That's found 
elsewhere in the teaching of both Jesus and in the teaching of the New Testament. But this was Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, um, silencing their, their test to him by returning them to the Scripture and to the original design of marriage by God. And so then here to his disciples, when they ask him about this, we see thirdly that Jesus lays down the law. Because Jesus is not unsure about this question. Verse 10 says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we see here Jesus is not soft on the idea or the consequences of divorce. He says that that divorce, illegitimately putting aside what God has joined together, that it was and is a sin. And he says that if a man or a woman divorces their spouse and then marries another, that they compound that sin. They aggravate that sin and are actually guilty then in their remarriage of committing adultery against their former spouse. If the divorce is invalid, according to the Scripture, then the individuals are not free to remarry. And if they do, they compound one sin with another. And that's the church of the, or the view of the church today. Well, it's the view of the Scriptures today. Churches are kind of all over the place on this. And like I said, there's, there's other teachings uh, that Jesus, there, there are additional teachings that clarify that. But in saying what Jesus says and putting the man and his wife in the same moral boat, Jesus does something else, too, that's not obvious. Um, As he puts them in this moral category, a like moral category in regard to divorce and remarriage, Jesus has really elevated women, elevated them to a status that they didn't really have in the first century, that of being a, a full, culpable, moral agent able to sin in this way, committing adultery, and able to be sinned against. See, in the Old Testament, the way it was understood was that a woman could commit adultery against her husband, but a husband could only commit adultery against the woman's father or her husband if she was married. That was who the the sin was really against. But Jesus, in saying what he says, is saying, no, it, when, if a man commits adultery, he commits adultery, she sa- he says there in verse 11, right at the end, against her. And if she divorces her husband, she commits adultery as well. God's will for marriage is clear on the pages of Scripture, beginning in the first chapter of that Scripture. And it is broadly That one man and one woman come together and remain together for the rest of their lives. For the purpose, as our confession reminds us, of the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind and of the church, and for prevention of uncleanness. Divorce is not God's will. He hates it. He hates the situation to cause it. Uh, He hates the results of it. Though, In these teachings in other places in Scripture, we learn that there are two things that so violate the marriage covenant 
that it destroys the marriage and renders the victim free, but not obligated, uh, to sue for divorce. Namely, and again I'll quote the Westminster Confession, namely, adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. Now I want to end with a couple of thoughts here. First of all, if you are in a situation where you are contemplating divorce, the ministry of the church is here to help. God doesn't want to see divorce. The church doesn't want to see divorce. This church doesn't want to see divorce. Now we can help. We can counsel with God's word. But also, we've seen the sin of, of divorce, the sin of remarriage after an invalid divorce. But just as divorce is sinful, it is not the unpardonable sin. For those of you who are believers, who have been involved in a divorce, even in this permissive day and age, these are things that can bring shame and judgment from people, sometimes from people in the church, People in the church who should, yes, recognize the sin, but also recognize the hurt that these particular things bring. The hurt that the hardness of heart, as Deuteronomy 24 spoke about, the hardness brings. And we should remind you, and I want to remind you this morning of the grace and the forgiveness of God, which is so great, and the the guidance of his word. And so if divorce is part of your past, repent where that is needed. Remember that Jesus died to forgive the sin of unbiblical divorce as well as every other sin you have committed. Because of the fact that it's sort of always there, it's visible, some people get the idea that if they have been divorced that God can't forgive that. God can forgive that as much as he forgives any other sin that we commit. And for every married couple here today, let us draw near to God in every aspect of our marriages, devoting ourselves to one another in the Lord, in God's service, and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for the, the blessing of marriage. We thank you that you have, have given to us such a, a joyful thing. And Lord, I pray that, that those hearing me this morning have joy in their marriage. It is meant for us to enjoy one another. We pray, Father, that if there are situations where there is not joy, where there is strife, where there are deep, deep hurts, Lord, I pray that you through your word, through the ministry of the church, through the ministry of Christians, that that you would heal those hurts, that you would uh, heal uh, marriages that are on rocky places. Help us to understand your word better and help us to desire, Lord, to 
obey your word more. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.